Welcome. I'm Paul Phillips, Director of Event Content Development for ISACA. And today I have the privilege of interviewing Minnie. Minnie is an internationally known cybersecurity expert. He is a strategic advisor to leading enterprises around the world, as well as states and governments, and sits on the advisory board of several startup companies. Minnie is the CEO of Cytactic, a cybersecurity services company. Welcome, Minnie. Hi. Hi, Paul. Very, very happy to be here. Very glad you decided to join us this morning. Why don't we start by you telling us a little bit more about yourself, including your full name? <laughs> oh, definitely. Uh, so it's Many Barzilai. I know it's a very long name. I'll give you, I think, the nickel tour in my life, like uh, past to present, so people will know where I come from and what I do. I currently sit, right now I'm in LA, though this is not where I live. I live in Tel Aviv, Israel. I started my, I would say, professional career at the age of 15, 16, when I opened my first company, we sold computers and we built computers and we fixed computers. And then I joined the army, spent seven years in the army. I was the CISO for the technological side of the intelligence services in the Israeli um, forces. After that, I spent 10 years in the largest banking group in Israel, Bank of Polim. Uh, in my last position there, I was the head of the IT audit department. And as you can imagine, as part of this role, I became very aware of uh, Isaka's activities, a very big fan. I left the bank, I think it was 2014, started my own cybersecurity services company. We work with large organizations worldwide. And that led to the Tel Aviv University asking me to be the CTO of the Cyber Research Center. So I'm currently the CTO of the Cyber Research Center at the Tel Aviv University, which is a, a cyber um, an interdisciplinary cyber research center. And a year ago, together with uh, my four partners, I uh, founded Cytactic, which is a cyber crisis management company. And what we do there, we help organizations to handle cyber crisis the moment they happen. Great, great. So glad you're here with us on today. So let's just dig into some of the uh, questions that I have for you. The first one is, please explain why you feel that privacy has a dark future. Definitely the dark future of privacy. I want to start by saying that I'm, a, I'm not a privacy fanatic. Like I'm not one of those that are afraid that people are following them. I actually have, I would say, an account in almost every social media network out there. I share information. I'm, my life is on the cloud. Everything that I have, um, I share. So I'm not one of those. And even though I'm not a privacy fanatic, I must say that the things that are going to happen in the years to come in the world of privacy are amazing and scary. And I think that everybody should, should know about them and maybe be aware of the problems that we're going to face. And I want to start by saying that we are at a point where, to some extent, big data holders, big internet companies, know us better than we know ourselves. And I think this is something that people can relate to. And to, in today's world, I think people start to understand that. And it starts, and this happens because of um, various reasons. For example, and this is the easiest one to understand, I would say, social networks knows uh, things about you that other people say. Uh, for example, if your significant other 
talks about you with their friends online, Facebook might know about it. If, if for example, your boyfriend or your girlfriend started looking for wedding rings or your significant other started talking to a divorce lawyer, maybe Facebook, Twitter, and other companies know things about you, dramatic things, for example, that you are about to get into a divorce process that you don't even know about. It. You don't, you're not even aware of that. So they know what other people say about you, sometimes what other people think about you. And this is just one aspect of the way those social networks have the ability to collect information uh, about you. Obviously, they have the ability to connect different pieces of data and get uh, uh, some, some understanding of your behavior that you might not even be aware of. For example, social networks might have the ability to know that certain types of food makes you tired two days later and you don't even know that and they know that when you're tired it's sometimes easier to make you buy things that you would usually not buy and so this is just some of the insights that those companies can get through analyzing your data analyzing your behavior that obviously uh, we and other people know us share um, online now the sustainable business model of the internet is using this private information to better understand you and then taking this understanding of yourself um, and using it in order to make you buy things and make you do things uh, and make you, um, I don't know, make decisions um, that otherwise you wouldn't make. And this is, this is amazing. If you would think about it, being able to predict your behavior based on the information they collect, it's like superpower, right? In the movies, we would usually see um, this lady sit, sitting with a crystal ball trying to say what will happen tomorrow, the day after that. But actually in today's world, some companies have the ability in some aspects, right? It's still limited aspects, but to predict your actions in the next in the next few days. And, and this is very dangerous and amazing and, and very, very dangerous. But to me, this, this would not make the future of privacy dark. The fact that we're going into a dark era in privacy is the fact that it's because of the fact that those companies doesn't just have the ability to predict your movement and predict your actions um, by using your uh, information together with some kind of uh, psychological algorithms. Those companies actually have the ability to manipulate your decision-making process and influence your decisions and the things that you're going to do. And this was proven again and again in uh, research. And that was, I think, you know, everybody knows about the story of Cambridge Analytica, which was a company um, engaged in manipulating people's decisions. And I would say this is what makes the future of privacy dark. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. So I think you just answered my next question. I heard a lot. I've heard a lot throughout my career uh, about data mining. But in your abstract, you use the term privacy mining. So help us understand what that means. Uh, privacy mining. Well, basically, privacy mining is the process of uh, collecting people's private information via um, various means. I think everybody understands that privacy is the currency of the Internet. Big uh, Internet companies like TikTok, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and others, you should think about them as machines that transforms privacy into profit. You put privacy on one end of the machine, and there is a whole process that 
that makes profit on the other side. And obviously, as you can imagine, each and every one of those companies want to make more and more money. They want to increase their profit. And there are mainly two ways uh, to do that. Either they can become better at transforming privacy into profit and that and they actually become better. They always improve their algorithm. But also there is another way to do that, just to collect more and more of our privacy. The more privacy they have, the more people they know, they have the ability to create more profits. So now their challenge, and those are very smart and innovative companies, their challenge is how to collect uh, more information. And we actually gave them their solution. The, the, the thing is that in the years to come, we're about to connect billions and billions of new devices to the internet, you know, like our shoes, our cars, our tables, our chairs, our watches, everything that we have will be connected to the internet. And we call that the internet of things. Now, the internet of things will introduce two small changes to the way we interact with computers or the way computers work that will have dramatic effect on our privacy. Um, change number one is that those devices work all the time. They are on by default. Unlike my camera in my phone, which is off by default, the camera is off unless I turn it on. My smartwatch is on unless I turn it off. That means my watch will collect information all the time unless I tell it otherwise. So those companies will be able to connect much more information through those devices. But the second thing that those uh, the Internet of Things introduced to the world, the second change is that those devices, we don't use keyboards to interact with them. We use other senses, uh, movement, uh, heartbeats, uh, walking, whatever it is. That means that those smart devices will have the ability to create digital representation of information that up until now was not available online. So now those companies can know how your heartbeat reacts to certain type of information, how much you sleep, are you tired, how many times a day you eat and do other things. And this will allow companies to get to know you much, much better. And this machine that transforms privacy into profit uh, will work amazingly, amazingly well in the years to come. So this process of finding new ways of collecting more and more of our privacy, I call it privacy mining. So that's interesting. I want to go back to something you said earlier, given privacy mining and the dark future of privacy. How is it that you're not a privacy fanatic? Why are you so comfortable with, you know, being out there on the Internet? Well, maybe I'm still naive uh, thinking that I have the ability to control what's happening and um, you know, thinking that oh, it will never happen to me. I don't think I'm being manipulated. I think that the best way to cope with the things that's going to happen is critical thinking. You know, like not accepting things as given. And you should always challenge what you read and you should always challenge what you share. And I try to do that. Like, I hope, I don't know, it's, I'm still scared to some extent, but I hope that um, I represent uh, re responsible usage of social media. I share a lot of information, but rarely do I share something which is very private. You would see a lot of information about myself. You would never see information about my family, about my friend that I share online, unless this is like also people in my field of uh, expertise. So I hope that I present the responsible user of social media, but yet I think that the problems that are going to happen 
are terrible. And to me, I'm, I'm actually scared about the years to come. I hear you. Great. So my next question for you, Minnie, is uh, this. So recently, ISACA just launched our digital trust strategy, uh, which is going to be really advantageous for the community. In your abstract, you use the term trust crisis. So what do you mean by uh, trust crisis? Um, trust crisis. Well, it becomes harder and harder. And I think people feel that all the time. It becomes harder and harder to know what's real and what, what's fake on the internet. And obviously we see that with fake videos, deep fakes, they're called, where you can create a video that looks real, but actually it's totally fake. And this is just the beginning. Five years from now, you would be able to create videos and articles using AI systems that the human brain will not be able in any way to differentiate between them and reality. So we are right now in a situation where people watch videos, and this is just the beginning, right? We are just at the, the beginning of the story, the beginning of the curve. People watch things online and still they have this, is this true? Is this computer manipulated? When we watch movies, I had this very stupid and funny moment like a few years ago where I watched um, animetrics. So those are videos, animation videos of the about the metrics uh, universe. And I watched one of those spacecrafts in the, in the animation video. I said, wow, those look so good, almost like in the real movies. And for a second there, my mind didn't work. And I didn't realize that even the, the real movies, those are CGI. So it's actually the same CGI. Um, so we already in a situation where our brain sees things and we don't realize that those things are not true. And when you give those, uh, and right now when big studios, video studios have the ability to create those amazing things. But when you give this power to everyone and people have different incentives and some people are, um, their activities are malicious by design. When you give this power to everyone, you get to a situation where you don't know if you can trust whatever you read on the internet. And there was this very interesting, to me, very interesting cyber incident where the Twitter account of AP uh, Associated Press was hacked, if I'm not mistaken, that it was them. And the hacker wrote a tweet online saying that there was a bombing on the White House and the president hurt, and we don't know what happened to them, which is obviously absolutely fake. But that made the Dow Jones go down dramatically. People lost a lot of money. And that was just because people trusted the Associated Press Twitter account. At the moment, there was something there which was fake. People didn't realize it was fake. They trusted this information. They made a decision uh, with their stocks based on this information and people lost a huge amount of money. So when we get to a situation where we can no longer trust what we read online, where we can no longer trust videos that we receive on, on WhatsApp, uh, and we can no longer trust things that our friends share, we're to me in a trust crisis. And this is a very, very important point. Trust is the basis for innovation. Without trust, there is no progress. If people will not trust autonomous cars, they will not use autonomous cars. If people will not trust um, certain websites, they will not read the news on those certain websites. Trust is a certain is the basis, is the base, as 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 the ground on which we build innovation. And when we get to a situation where we cannot trust things online, 
uh, we will hinder progress and we will have a problem moving forward. Wow. You know, I mean, I think that's a Facebook post. Trust is the basis for innovation. Wow. Very well put. Very well put. So let's talk. We've been talking about all of the issues and I get it. Uh, but let's talk about possible solutions. You know, how do we navigate uh, as an, as organizations and enterprises, as well as individuals in this dark future and this uh, this the, some of the issues with trust. Uh, for instance, what can companies do to improve trust among their stakeholders, meaning their employees, their customers, their suppliers? What are, what are some of your suggestions? So I think it was proven again and again uh, that transparency goes a long way. Even during cyber crisis, uh, when people get hacked, companies get hacked, Many of those times, what we would recommend our clients is transparency is the best way to go about it. It seems like people actually react really, really well to companies which are being transparent about the good things and the bad things that happen to them. And even if in the short time, this will hurt the company in the long time, actually that increase people's good feeling about the company. So definitely transparency. If you're collecting information, share, explain to people what kind of information you collect, how would you use it? And if something happened to this information, be upfront about it. Make people feel that they can trust you in the sense that if something happened, you would tell them. They don't need to wait for other people to discover. They don't need to investigate. They can trust you that if something happened, um, you would tell them. Beside transparency, obviously the discussion about ethics is very, very important. Um, and we see that again and again and again, where the way you would use private information, the way you would uh, uh, behave to your customers, those things are very, very important. And the question of ethics, what is right and what is wrong, is a very complicated one. There are no very strict answers right now in the world. But we already seen some cases where companies didn't even realize that they use uh, information in the wrong way. I would say the most famous case is probably the story about Target, where they sent uh, information about pregnancy to a 16 years old uh, girl coming from, a, if I'm not mistaken, a religious house, and where her father discovered that Target, the, the, the grocery chain, store chain, sends this uh, information about pregnancy. He got really, really, really mad, and he went there, and he, and he, and he I don't know, yelled uh, on them. And he didn't realize that she was pregnant. And Target knew that. The girl, the 16 years old girl knew that. And the father didn't know that. And the question that was asked is, was this okay? The Target used their traditional uh, marketing mechanism uh, to send information about pregnancy because they saw that this girl bought some products related to pregnancy. They assumed that she's pregnant, right? That was a very easy connection to make. And they send, used their um, marketing mechanism to send her information about pregnancy. And was that okay or not? Sharing her secrets through this process, was that okay or not? And obviously Target didn't mean to do anything bad. It was just a standard um, uh, process. But this raises the question, when and how you should use people's um, information? And this is very interesting because if you think about it, 
um, almost every company that collects information about your location have people's secrets. They know if people cheat on their wife or on the husband, sometimes, right? They know if people are sometimes sick because they go to specific places on the hospital on a frequent, uh, like very, very uh, uh, frequently. Um, they know where people are doing bad things. I don't know. So, um, so they know if people have, like their sexual orientation uh, by the places they visit, parties that they go to. So almost every company have information that could actually harm a lot of a lot of people. So the question about ethics is very, very important. And going back to your question, Paul, uh, what should organizations do to increase their trust? So besides transparency, I would say having a very, very strong uh, ethics, being very upfront with their uh, ethical behavior, like what are the, the rules that they're going to apply, and very be very, very strict about them and constantly improve them because the world changes and we should adopt our ethics to be um, able to fit the, the, the world. Yeah, awesome. So so be transparent as an organization and be ethical yeah. when and where possible. And that's not always easy, but at least ask the questions and great, great, great. Have you you have you seen organizations uh, that have chief ethics officers or committees. I guess my question is, have you seen this play out in certain organizations? So honestly, there there's a lot of credit to give to big companies like um, Google and Facebook and other. I don't think that those companies are the source of evil. I think that those are great innovative companies that just try to make profit, right? Uh, and in the process, they 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 face challenges that other companies didn't face because those the, the type of business of those companies was not was not there uh, years um, like twenty years ago. But to some extent, those companies lead the discussion about ethics of uses of data usage. But to me, the companies, the more dangerous companies, the companies that would definitely need to be at the front line of the ethical discussion, those are artificial intelligence companies. Because usage, the combination between artificial intelligence and data is amazing and it is dangerous. And this creates, for example, the deep fakes and it creates, for example, the ability of algorithms to learn your behavior and manipulate your decision makers and your decision making process and the, your set of beliefs. So the combination between artificial intelligence and privacy is probably the source of the, of the dangers that we're going to see in the years to come. So any company that deals with artificial intelligence should definitely be at the front line of the, the ethical discussion. And I think that most of them do. Still, this is this is just the beginning. We see that people talk about that. We see that some people share information about how uh, you should use artificial intelligence ethically. For example, one of the rules is that the makers of the suggested rule that's still not applied, but the maker of the artificial intelligence system is responsible for everything that the artificial intelligence system is doing. Um, um, any progress, significant progress in artificial intelligence should be shared between everyone to prevent a situation where one company or one country have an asymmetric, this, uh, asymmetric advantage over other countries or other companies uh, because people understand that those Technologies are super dangerous, super, super interesting and super dangerous. 
And the ethical discussion about them is amazing. And I think as a challenge, everybody should try and think what, what should be the, the rules of ethics uh, for artificial intelligence and private information. Uh, I would be more than happy to hear people thought about that because this is not an easy, um, an easy discussion to have. Also because the more you limit companies' activities, again, the more you live, limit their innovative uh, uh, efforts and their progress. So again, you have the trade-off between ethics and innovation. And I would say this is very, very, not always. There's In some ways, ethics um, actually promote innovation, but this is a very interesting discussion. Yeah, very interesting. And it's not black and white. So there's a lot of gray. Yeah. So I'm going to attempt to take a question from the chat here. I'm not sure I understand it. It says digital pavement is also taking the privacy of the pattern, how one spin and what they buy often in there. I think what the what the question is, is, is there a pattern? Are our companies seeing a pattern based on digital payment and what people buy? Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. Because here we see again, and I mean, I think in this in this session, I've already talked twice about how there is a trade-off between privacy and other things, right? Um, but there is again a very interesting trade-off between privacy and security. Um, usually, if you want to be provide people with more security, you have to collect more and more of our of their data to make sure that they are the ones doing. Um, I don't know the action. They are the ones paying the using the credit card. They are the ones doing that. And if you want to provide them with more privacy, that means you would usually collect less of their information. That means usually you, do, you will be able to provide them with less security. Think about cameras on the streets, right? Cameras on the street provide you with security, but they they hinder your privacy. Um, so think about those systems during the COVID nineteen. A lot of governments use systems that would. Um, um, collect information about where people are and what they do to discover if people got infected. So obviously we use a lot of people's private information, but what the governments try to provide them is more security with regards to fighting COVID. So there is always um, trade-off, almost always trade-off between privacy and security. And definitely digital payment uh, um, companies they became very, very good at fighting fraud and fighting um, um, threat actors trying to pay on your behalf or whatever. Um, and they did it by collecting a lot of information about things that you buy and the way that you buy them and the, the, your computer that you use to buy them and your uh, procurement process and so on and so forth. And, uh, and that allowed them to be very good with fighting fraud but also, obviously, if they have information about the things that you buy, they have very, very sensitive information about you because the things that you buy um, tend to reveal a lot of secrets about you, if you would think about it. Again, going back to the Target example, just by buying things that, relate to, that are related to pregnancy, um, Target was uh, were able to know that this lady, that this girl is actually pregnant. Uh, but there are so many different things um, that companies know um, but they collect this information, I would hope so, in order to provide you with more secure services. I hope that answered the question. I'm not sure, but I hope it answered the question. Great, great. You got time for one more question, Vinny? Definitely. So, uh, decentralized systems would be the solution 
for protecting both privacy and security? No, no, uh, absolutely not. The centralized systems solve different issues, not um, not uh, security and not privacy. Um, if you would think about um, the blockchain, for example, as a decentralized system, so the blockchain is an amazing, amazing solution, uh, but it would not provide you with privacy since everything on the blockchain is open to everyone. And it will most in most cases it will not provide you with uh, security because the blockchain is one of the most dangerous technologies out there right now uh, for many 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 different reasons. And if we had more time, I would go into that. But there are two things. There are more, but let's talk about two two things that the blockchain introduces to the world that are absolutely amazing and would have the ability to change the way technology works. Um, number one is the fact that the, the system is decentralized. Um, to some extent, it removes the single point of failure that other centralized systems have. That means that if you would take parts of the internet down, still blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, would still be available because it's 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 um, exists in many different places around the world. But the second thing, which is much more exciting to me, what the blockchain and those decentralized information systems provide is your inability to change the past. And that creates trust. That means that if you have information that was written into the Bitcoin blockchain, I don't know, a year ago, there is no way in hell to change this information. Unlike, for example, database that sits inside a bank, if you would hack this bank and you would go to this mainframe and databases, you can change everything, the past, the future, the present, you can change everything. But with blockchain, because of the way the blockchain works, where you have a block and then a block on it and then a block on it and then a block on it, um, the information that was written into this database, the blockchain, in the past, um, nobody can change it, uh, at least with today's technology, right? Um, and that creates the type of trust that we didn't see before. This is, to me, a very, very exciting technology in the sense that it could give you the potential to create trust where other solutions will not be able to provide you with uh, the same level of trust. So it's not about security and it's not about, I don't know, other things, but definitely some aspects of trust are there. Yeah, so interesting. So unfortunately we are out of time, but very, very insightful conversation. Vinny, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.